Yeah, this this passage that we get to look at this morning is an amazing is an amazing passage. It's become one of my favorite stories in all of the scripture, um, just because of so many powerful messages that it communicates. But um, and I think it's a great fit in this series that you might believe, because really this story is about a moment of believing. Uh, and the transformation that takes place from that and about the encounter that led to that belief. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from this text this morning, from this story of, um, of what I believe to be a pretty incredible woman, one of, the, one of the unique and important and vital women that we see in, uh, in the Scripture. So what we're going to do this morning... Um, to kind of come to, to, to see, I, this is one of those texts that while it's a long text, it's a story, and we could just read a chunk of it, but then we'd miss part of the story, right? So we really kind of need to hear the whole story. And uh, so if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the scriptures in honor of the scriptures. If you're not able, then I certainly encourage you, if you would, just stand with us in your hearts. But, uh, but this is long, and so if you get tired halfway through and you sit down, I'm not going to think you love Jesus less, or you don't believe in the scripture, or you didn't like that part, or anything like that. Um, but I do want us to just hear the whole story, and, and kind of soak in it for just a second, as we try to understand a little bit about what's going on. So John chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, uh, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It, it was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had already gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to come here and draw water. Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. 
I don't have a husband, she answered. You've correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you're, uh, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I, I see that you are a prophet. I our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Don't miss this, one of my favorite verses. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. It's me. It's me. Uh, just then, his disciples arrived. Perfect timing. And they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Not for good reasons. Yet, no one said, what do you want? Or, why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town, made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, Could someone have brought him something to eat? I'm imagining shaking his head. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap what you did not labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. May God bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. So that's an amazing story, right? I mean, I, and, and there's so much there that, I'm going to apologize up front. We're just not going to be able to get to all of it. 
uh, there's probably three or four or five good sermons in that text. We're going to try to look at the big picture of it and from a particular slant. And so it may be that Pastor Michael just decides, well, you know, he didn't get it all. So I'm going to come back and get a little bit more of it next week. I, I don't know how that goes or how strict he is about staying with the schedule on the series. But, uh, but I, 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 want us to, I want us to look at this in a, in a particular way because, and I've titled this, Jesus Shows the Way. Because I think that there's a unique aspect to this story that is beautiful and important and vital. And that is we see Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, God in flesh come to dwell among us. We see Jesus encountering a woman who is far from him, far from the Father, and inviting her into a relationship. And, and, and I think there's things that we ought to learn from that. I, I know that in this series last week you were in John chapter 3 with some of and maybe the most memorized verse in all of Scripture. An encounter between Jesus and Nicodemus, by the way, a very different encounter than this encounter. Right? Nicodemus was the dude, right? I mean, he was one of the teachers of the law in all of Jerusalem. And now here we are, one chapter later, and Jesus is encountering a very different individual. Okay? But we saw in that text, and you understand in that text, that Pastor Michael was talking about this idea that maybe, is it possible that somehow we've worked to get so many things right in the church... That, that we've missed this focus on the thing that Jesus very well may ask us, have you made disciples? Right? Because that's what he told us to do. It's, it's funny to me how much energy we burn, uh, not needlessly because they're important things, but how much energy we burn on getting everything right, doing everything just so, having all our T's crossed, all our I's dotted, but yet we often miss the very thing that Jesus most directly commanded and commended us to do, and that is to go and make disciples. And so what Jesus shows us here in chapter 4 is him doing what he would eventually command his disciples to do likewise. Right? And he says, right in the great commandment, I, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. In a sense, the spirit of Jesus displayed here and illustrated for us in inviting someone into a journey of discipleship is the same spirit that's with us, and I believe whispering in our ear and encouraging us and cheering us on to do likewise. When I'm asked... From uh, my, with my associational hat on, as an association of churches, what is it going to take for us to have an impact on our city? My answer always is, we're going to have to make disciples. Not have the most political power. Not speak on all the issues just at the right time and just in the right way and all of that. But to make disciples. Every single church as we lock arms together, making disciples of all kinds of people in all kinds of settings, in all kinds of circumstances around our city, 
growing them up, training them in all the things that Jesus taught us to, to understand and has shown us in his word, and then uh, encouraging them and helping them to multiply themselves and invite others to come into a journey of discipleship and to learn all those things and to grow so that they can then. It's this multiplying effort magnified over the church. That's how we're going to make a difference. That's how your church is going to have an impact on the community that you serve. Right? Not by having all the bells and whistles, not by having all the best programs, but by doing the simple thing of loving people in the name of Jesus, inviting them into a relationship, showing them the things that the Scripture says, and helping them to go out and do the same thing. I mean, I hate to say that it's that simple because my job is kind of built on explaining stuff to people about this deal, and really, I'm unnecessary, This is, this is the picture of making disciples. We're, we're called to be obedient, not just in a corporate sense, but each of us with a call to obey, to go, to love, to proclaim, to invite, to teach and encourage. This is what making disciples looks like. And it's a thing that is honored in Scripture. Romans 10, Paul writes in verse 14, How then can they call on him that they have not believed in and how can they believe without hearing about him and how can they hear without a preacher or a teacher or someone just to speak sometimes we write that one off because it says preacher in our modern day uh, translations and things like that and we use the excuse right to say well I ain't a preacher so that's why I'm off the hook it's all of us and how can they preach or teach or declare the good news unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I want you to understand this morning that that's not just a verse for missionaries who get commissioned by a mission board and sent overseas. That's you. Now some of y'all, in an earthly sense, got some ugly feet. I ain't even seen them, but I know. It's just the odds. All right, I'm just thinking percentage-wise here. Some of y'all got some ugly feet. Maybe you got some crazy stuff going on with your toenails, whatever, got one of them crooked toes. I don't know. But yet, Scripture says that when we're obedient to do what God has called us to do in making disciples, our feet are beautiful. They're wholly transformed. I went to a wedding last weekend. Josh Jean Marie uh, got married last weekend, and they did the foot washing thing in the middle of their wedding. I was like, oh, that's some risky stuff right there. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't know, I don't know how long he'd had them socks and shoes on and all of that, and here they're getting married, about to make vows, and you know, I don't know, that's, that's side note that I just, just thought, yeah, it's modern day stuff, I don't know, y'all do whatever. All right, so this is what I hope, this, I hope that the story today, and as we kind of break down some of the, some of the movements that I see in this story, I, I, I hope that it will encourage you, will encourage you to be ready, to be obedient, to understand the power of a transformed life, right? That's really what we're seeing here. We're, we're going to see by the end of this story a life that is magnificently transformed and what immediately comes out of that transformed life. Who better to learn from in terms of engaging others that are far from God? 
than Jesus himself. So let me just break this down. Uh, I know that I am in the presence of a former news reporter, so I do this with great fear and trepidation. But I'm going to walk. Well, he already left, so I'm good. All right, I'm safe. He left. Whew. All right. So I want to come at this by some simple questions, the where, the who, the what, the how of what's going on here and the way that Jesus is engaging, which I think is an old reporter trick, right? Would that be fair to say? Okay. All right. I'll do the best I can in his absence. First thing that I want you to see is that this idea, how, how Jesus did it, the uncomplicated witness of the Christ and the unbelievable results begins in unexpected places. In unexpected places. There in these first six verses, we're really kind of getting the context for what's about to happen, for the encounter that is about to take place. Jesus has uh, left Jerusalem because the Pharisees are trying to stir up a beef, is what they're trying to do. Um, you know, they're trying, to, they're trying to separate and divide Jesus and his disciples and John and his disciples. So they're trying to say, well, Jesus seems to be more successful and he's doing more baptizing than John. And maybe if they can divide and conquer. Isn't it amazing how the devil's not very creative? He's still doing the same junk today, right? He wants to divide those who are trying to declare the kingdom of God. He wants to divide us, separate us, split us, get us fussing and fighting with each other so that we won't be busy about doing the work that he's called us to do. And he's doing it really well right now. Uh, we see it all over the place. It's interesting that John, this biographer of Jesus, this disciple of Jesus, chooses to clarify, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So John feels compelled to say, yeah, and they weren't even right, right? They, I mean, they, they were trying to make a beef about it, but they, they weren't even right about it, because that's not what Jesus was doing. So he left Judea, went again to Galilee, but listen to what verse 4 says. He had to travel through Samaria. Now this is, an interesting, this is an interesting statement. He had to travel through Samaria. In actuality, he didn't. Now I'm not saying that scripture is wrong. I'm saying that he didn't as in that was the only path to get to Samaria. He, he didn't because for most Jews, the tradition of the day was to circumvent Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans. Samaritans were considered half-breeds. And so the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. Samaritans knew how much the Jews hated them. And so the Samaritans hated the Jews right back. And so it was typical if a Jew was going in that direction... They would take a long journey around to bypass Samaria so that they could get where they were going to get to Galilee. But yet the scripture says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. I think that meant that on Jesus' Google Calendar, the Father had put a little note. Y'all got shared calendars? Do you guys do that shared calendar thing? Yeah, so my wife can tell me what to do and when to do it and when to be there. And I can tell her the same thing. And then she says, well, you didn't write it on the calendar on the refrigerator. I said, well, I put it on our calendar on the phone. She said, I don't look at that. <laughs> I, that's a whole other issue, too. But the father apparently put 
an appointment on Jesus' calendar and said, I've got someone for you to meet. Now, I know it's a spot that you wouldn't normally go and that other, other Jews tend to avoid, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to go straight up through Samaria on your way to Galilee because I've got somebody that you need to meet. And so Jesus, being always perfectly obedient to the Father, did exactly what the Father told him to do. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So this is a historic location. This is an important location. This is a location that has all kinds of significance for the Jews. We, We see it show up in the Old Testament. Jesus is being obedient to go to where the Father told him to go, even though it was an unexpected place for him to be. And some may have even said it was an inappropriate place for him to be. Now, now we've got to be careful there because here's the argument that I want to make with you. Is that we have to be with lost people. I I mean, how are we going to share Jesus with lost people if we're never with lost people? that, That math just does not work, does it? And so when I say that, though... And when I use the phrase inappropriate places, I want us to be careful because we know that there have been some believers who have shipwrecked their lives under the guise of I got to be with lost people and then they've just gotten sucked into all of the things that lost people are doing in those places. So, so we've got to guard our hearts. We've got to be motivated by the right things. We've got to be doing it. We've got to be... Uh, you know, we've got to have accountability and things like that as we do it. But the bottom line is, where you are leads to who you encounter and get to have significant relationship and conversation with, doesn't it? So if we do the holy huddle thing super well, and we plan out and schedule every moment of every day for our extra little holy huddles in all their different shapes and sizes, and we make that in such a way that we never encounter people who are far from God, we're going to have a real problem being obedient to what he left us here to do to make disciples. Now, now we'll be able to teach each other, we'll be able to grow each other up in strength, but that's not all there is to it. Right? Us all being ultra holy and knowing all the answers to all of the questions is not all there is to it. That's not why Jesus left us primarily here. I mean... Because frankly, it was a lot easier path if he would just, when we say yes to Jesus, he just takes us to heaven, then we know everything anyway. We don't have to spend all this time and energy trying to learn it all. But yet our, our learning it is supposed to be the kind of journey where we're constantly inviting people along the way. We're encouraging others to follow this one who we've given our lives to follow. But to do that, we have to find out and realize that we got to be in some unexpected places. we got to be in some places where people say, oh, well, Christians don't come here. Oh, well, that dude's a preacher. He sure ain't going to show up here. We were just talking. You guys were on the news. The neighborhood was on the news and all of that stuff. You know, some things going on that shouldn't be going on in the neighborhood. But yet, 
having relationships with people that are doing those things is how we begin to encounter and share Jesus and share that there's hope and that they don't need to be messing with those things. That there's hope in Jesus that can rescue them from a dependence upon those drugs or whatever else. Unexpected places. The church has got to get outside the walls. We've got to get outside of our bubbles. We've got to be less scared of people not like us and even people who aggressively believe things differently than us so that we can have an impact for the sake of the gospel. It's got to happen. And here Jesus, our perfect model, shows us the way. He goes to the place where others wouldn't go. He has the conversations that others wouldn't have with people that others wouldn't have them with. So the where is unexpected places. The who here, <clears throat> now, now it changes partially partway through when I sent the outline to Pastor Michael. And so on the screen you're going to see uncategorized people. That's the dumbest point in a sermon I've ever written in my life. I, I just want to... I just want to fess up to you. That, that's just, that's just kind of dumb. Now, the reason that I did that is because I originally wrote it as unexpected places and unexpected people. And since I have a slight fear of man, I was afraid y'all were going to judge me for duplicating the same word in the two points of my sermon. And so in my shame, I changed it to uncategorized. But it's just a dumb way to say it. So I apologize to you. The who, if you want to say uncategorized people, that's fine. But it's unexpected people. The point is, is that Jesus is encountering this Samaritan woman. In 7 through 9, there's this encounter with Jesus. Now again, Jesus goes to this unexpected place. I don't want us to miss, and we'll try to come back to this before I'm done, but it says that Jesus is exhausted. This is a beautiful little snapshot, by the way, to talk about the perfect humanity of Jesus, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. I mean, he's just dog-tired. He's beat. He, he doesn't even want to walk into town and hunt for food with the rest of the disciples. He said, you guys go. You guys go look for food. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to put my feet up. I'm going to rest. Now, I think he also knew that he had an appointment coming, and it was easier if they weren't there. That's true, too. But it says that he was tired. So here's Jesus worn out. It's about noon. It's the middle of the day. By the way, not the time that people come and draw water. Just saying. So a woman from Samaria comes up to draw water. Now, this is a, an almost scandalous kind of encounter that happens here, so much so that even she realizes it. I have to imagine that she shows up at the well and she's like, whoa, what are you doing here, right? I mean, that's what she's thinking in her mind. And so she's thinking, don't look at him, don't make eye contact. I just flew this weekend and you know how you do when you're in the seat and you don't want him to fill the middle seat and so you don't really make eye contact. So hoping that, you know, if they don't lock eyes with you, they won't be like, oh, can I sit in that middle seat? Um, so similar kind of thing going through her mind, I think. She, she doesn't want to make eye contact. She doesn't want to engage. But yet Jesus then calls her out. But she knows and she's shocked that he talks to her because it's a man talking to a woman and it's a Jew talking to a Samaritan. And she's like, don't you know the rules? Don't you get it? 
People like you aren't supposed to talk to people like me. How many lost people in your community do you think feel like that? People like you don't talk to people like us. But you church people, all you do is judge people like us. You don't talk to people like us. You don't ask us questions. You may talk about us, but you don't talk to us. And so here's Jesus with people. And, and, and part of the reason why I did the uncategorized thing is because I was thinking about John chapter 3, right? And so here's Jesus. We just have recorded this encounter that he has with this highly decorated teacher of the law, this Jew of Jews in Jerusalem and all of that. And he can just as easily have a conversation and call him to repentance and faith as he can turning around to this Samaritan woman. So I think a part of what we've got to do, brothers and sisters, is we've got to come to a place where we're less hung up about the category of people that we are going to encounter and that we're going to talk to or that we're going to build relationships with and more thinking about, God, who have you divinely put in my path that I can talk to today? Who, who are my neighbors? Right? That's that, that's that question of the Good Samaritan story. Well, who is my neighbor? Well, my neighbor is whoever God puts in front of me with a need. Whether they look like me, talk like me, act like me, have the same values as me, vote the same politically as me, have the same yard signs in their yard as me, it, it doesn't matter, Right? That we're here and that we're encountering all kinds of people. And we should be thinking about, are there some people that I could encounter that might not otherwise have a witness for the sake of the gospel that I can encounter because I have a gift. The greatest gift that's ever been given to offer to them. Right? So as Jesus shows us the path... He's giving us the where in unexpected places. He's giving us the who in unexpected or uncategorized people. There's not rules to it. But, but listen to this. I, I want you to see that while this is somewhat unorthodox, these first two things about where we are and who we're encountering, what Jesus does next is he really, he really articulates an unchanging message. An unchanging message. So it's not that we go to these different kinds of people in different places and that we're constantly altering our message or we're toning down the hard parts of the gospel or the sharp edges of what scripture says and things like that that we're accommodating and that we're, we're watering down. It's not that. We're still declaring the truth of the gospel. We're doing it in love and grace. Because Jesus is, is pretty, pretty direct here. Now, he uses this analogy, and I, I'm, Jesus is a, he is a master at this, right? He's a master at everything, I guess, actually. So, that's kind of redundant to say that. But he's a master at this, for sure, in terms of taking the circumstances around him, drawing an analogy to something so that, so that we can understand. That's what I love about that. I think we ought to think about that in our encounters with people. So he asked her for this water. She's shocked and stunned by this. 
And Jesus says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. You see what Jesus has done there? Now, a pretty abrupt turn, I will admit, but I think it's pretty clear that Jesus wasn't entering into this long-term relationship and an ongoing conversation that maybe some of us have uh, the ability to have. But Jesus wanted to make sure that she was clear and to turn the conversation from this physical thing, water, to this spiritual thing, living water. Jesus wanted to make sure that there was a bigger conversation to be had than just the chit-chat they might have about the water and the well. You see, it's got to always be about Jesus. It's got to be about the living water. And, and when we do that, I think that when we're honest with people and open with people and go to the heart of the matter with people, I think that's compelling. Out of fear, we tend to, in our encounters, not talk about those things because we're afraid somebody's going to be offended or push us away. I believe, even more so today, that that is compelling to people because they hear so much junk that for you to be honest, for you to talk about the most important thing in your life, for you to talk about something that transcends all the foolishness of this world, and to talk about something eternal, people want to have that conversation. People want to hear that. People want to know that there's something more than just this. Because just this ain't so great a lot of times. And so we understand that there's this unchanging message. There's a plain gospel that we're sharing. They have this whole exchange. It's pretty hilarious, actually, when she tries to kind of school Jesus a little bit. And she says, you don't even have a bucket. Well's deep, are you greater than Jacob, and all that. I always wonder, I always wonder if Jesus had the same self-talk in the back of his mind like I do sometimes, where you say things in response to people that, you know, by God's grace, you just filter and don't come out of your mouth. I mean, I know he wouldn't have been ugly or anything, but, you know, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? And Jesus is thinking, well, yes, actually I am, much greater. I created him. And, uh, and then he says, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Do you see the big thing that he's offering here? This isn't just a drink. It's not just multiple drinks. It's it's converting from a well that just holds some water to that we actually become springs of living water that we can pour out good news for others. Man, that, see, that's the transformation of the gospel, right? That's what he's talking about here. You get that, right? He's using this analogy, but the transformation of heart that he's talking about here is what he's offering to her. That's what we have to offer to the world. That's what we have to offer. That is our gift. The transforming work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, came and lived a perfect life, died a death that was not his to die on our behalf, bore the sins of the world 
on that cross bore the shame of the Father as he bore our sin, died and was buried in a borrowed tomb, but on the third day he rose again in victory over sin and death and the enemy of this world. Right? He conquered it all. He paid it all. Then he showed himself to thousands over 40 days. Then he ascended into heaven, took his place at the right hand of the Father, now speaks on behalf of all who believe, and one day is going to come back and make all things new. See, that good news message, that gospel message, is the unchanging message that we have to offer. And when we get out in the weeds on every other message that we can do, and we lose that, we can talk about other things, but if we talk about other things to the exclusion of losing that main unchanging thing, then we're not doing what Jesus told us to do anymore. We're just not. And that's tough. That's balance. But Jesus gives us this beautiful, beautiful model of engaging in this way. Now, the world's not always going to immediately understand when we share this unchanging message. I love verse 15. Sir, the woman said, give me some of that water. I don't want to get thirsty, and I don't want to have to keep coming up here to get water every day. All right? We'll have some people who we try to share the good news with, and they'll see it as just, oh, so what you're saying is my life will be easier. No, that's not really what I'm saying. So, so what you're saying is that I won't have to struggle anymore. Mm, no, that's not really what I'm saying. So, so what you're saying is that all the hard things that have been in my life, they're, they're just going to magically poof and go, mm, no, 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 that's not really what I'm saying either. Right? This good news message is about transformation. It's about a joy that comes from a unique and beautiful place. It, it, it's about a promise of glory. I love the songs that we sang this morning, recognizing this joy in the moment, but this hope for eternity, right? That there's glory to come, even if it's hard right now. Now, how did Jesus do this? So we know where he was, we know who he was with, we know what he's doing. How, how did he do this? I think this 16 through 18 gives us a little picture of Jesus has a pretty unvarnished approach. You know what I mean by unvarnished, right? He didn't, try to, he didn't try to gussy it up. He didn't try to, you know, doll it up or anything like that. He just kind of went to the simple, plain truth. Uh, simple, plain truth not only of the living water, but the simple, plain truth of the reality of what was going on in her life. She wants to have this whole thing about, you know, clearly she doesn't understand what he's really offering her in living water, what he's really offering her with water springing up in him or her for eternal life. He knows she doesn't get it. So Jesus goes to the heart of what's going on in her life. Now, we could read this and say, Jesus is kind of being mean here, right? We could. We could look at it that way by the question that he poses to her, by the the direction that he gives to her. Obviously, Jesus knew her heart. That's an advantage that Jesus has that we don't. But we do know things, and we can't act like we don't know things, and we shouldn't act like we're just glossing over things. Jesus says to her, go call your husband. Come back here then. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. I mean, 
that's about as blunt as life gets, right? And we, again, could look at that and say, man, Jesus was kind of a jerk in the way that he said that. I mean, that must have been really hard for her. Because, again, I do want to say this as a side note. Often when we hear this text or when we read this text or this text is preached, you know, there's this big, long-sorted thing about how terrible this woman was and about how inappropriate she was and blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know the context of these five marriages or the situation that she was in. I don't know if this woman had been trafficked in some way, if she was the, if she was the victim of some abuse or something like that. So I'm not going to go there, all right? I'm not jumping in there. This is what I do know. I know that this relational damage and breakage in her that was illustrated by all of these relationships was the deepest part of her heart hurt. I, I, don't, I don't think that takes a rocket science to figure out. And so Jesus goes right to the deepest heart issue that this woman bears. And what he wants to say to her is, there's hope even there. Even there, woman. Even that thing that causes you the most shame, even that thing that causes people to treat you like a pariah. You ever wonder why she was there at noon? That's not when the other women came to get water at the well. She was there because nobody wanted to go get water with her. She was there because she could only go then. That was maybe the only time they would let her go. So Jesus, in this unvarnished way and this unguessed, he just, he just goes to the heart of it. I think that we have people in our lives that are broken and hurting and they're sick of us dancing all around the issues with them. I just do. And I think they're kind of looking and saying, is this Jesus thing that you're all about? Does, does it really matter for this part of my life? Are you just trying to get me to come to church on Sunday? Are, are, are you just trying to get me to stop doing this thing or that thing? Or is this Jesus that you're so big on really great enough to change that and to help me in that and to fix that? Is it possible? We're not... I, I don't want us to become jerks. I don't want us to become self-righteous. We're not wagging our fingers. And you know we're not why we're not wagging fingers? Because Jesus saved us from all our crap too. I don't know all your stuff, but I bet you don't want us all to know it. I don't want you to know all mine. But the gospel's big enough. Grace and mercy are big enough to rescue me from my deepest junk. And if you're here as a believer, he did that for you. And so the reason that we want to be honest and direct is that we approach people that are wounded and hurting, broken, lost in their lostness is because what Jesus has done for us, he can do for them. Don't you want other people to be rescued from their stuff like he rescued you? He not only had an unvarnished approach, but he also had an unswerving focus. It's kind of funny. We won't camp here very long, but I just want you to see if, if you think about what's happening in verse 19 through 26. 
<laughs> he goes to the heart of the matter, right? He's calling out this situation in her life, basically getting at the point of, hey, no, we're not, we're not talking about this stuff. We're, t- we're talking about that stuff. And what does she do? She has a squirrel moment. You know what I'm talking about? Right? Those moments that happen, squirrel, right? I've had about three of them already in this sermon, and I'm supposed to be a professional. Whether intentional or unintentional, she did not want to talk about that. Jesus knew they needed to talk about that. She didn't want to talk about that. And so she immediately gets theological. You ever had anybody do that with you, right? Where you're talking to them about their brokenness, or you're talking to them about the real stuff and all that, and then they're like, you know, I've been thinking about hyperlapsarianism <laughs> and the great eschaton and... You know, where, where are you at on Revelation chapter 19, right? You've had that happen. Uh, I mean, Jesus just didn't have any of it, right? He, he's, he's not, he's not going to let the moment be lost. She didn't like him looking into her life. People won't necessarily like that they need that and I would argue I think they want that if you're honest and gracious about it we need to we need to stay focused on Jesus now that doesn't mean that we ignore other presenting problems and hurts and wounds and things like that I think we've got to do that I think we've got to love people we've got to care for them but we've got to keep bringing it back to Jesus, and Jesus does this. I mean, he, he accommodates her comment for just a moment in saying, well, look, here's the real reality. It's not going to be about what mountain you're worshiping on. We're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, and there's something bigger going on here. Uh, there's a moment happening here that you don't even realize I need you to stay focused, dear woman. I need you to stay focused on the real conversation. And the real conversation, and even in his answer to her, kind of bringing her back to the center, she even, she even begins, it, it appears, to understand. The Spirit is moving and working here. And so the woman says to him, she wants to talk about this theological issue of where to worship and all of that. And you know, she butters him up with, you must be a prophet and all of that. But she begins to realize, she's beginning to understand the significance of what he's saying to her. And she says, well, well yeah, I guess I, I, I do. I know that the Messiah is coming. He, he, he's the Christ. He's, he's the one who's going to make all things new. I know that's happening. And when he comes, I'm pretty confident that he's going to explain it to us. Now, I said as I was reading the text that this is one of my favorite verses. This is what's so amazing. Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She had her, what I call, it's, it's me moment from Jesus. Right? If you're here as a believer today, you've had one of those moments. You've had a moment where the living God, Jesus himself, in whatever way he opened your heart to see this truth, stood before you and said, it's me. And you believed it. Right? We should be thankful for that. Right? Ultimately, 
Jesus understands the most important thing in this woman's life is to know who he is. She knew by who he is what he, what he was meant to do, but he needed her to know who he is. As we encounter people that are far from God, as we're dealing with all these things, as they want to chase rabbit trails, do all of these kinds of things, we need to keep coming back that we want to introduce people to who Jesus is. This is who he is. This is who he is. This is what he's done for you. This is the hope. We have all kinds of, <laughs> we have all kinds of reasons why we can't do this. All the struggles that we have, all the busyness, all the other things and all that. I'm too tired. Nope, don't forget that what we see at the beginning of the text, Jesus sat down at this well because he was exhausted. So tired he didn't even want to walk into town and get something to eat. And yet Jesus, the moment this divine appointment strikes, he's ready for business. We've got to stop our excuses and we've got to be focused on Jesus, trust that the Holy Spirit is going to do his work. I mean, I think this is the real transition here. This is when it happens. I think between 25 and 26 and what's going on there, the Holy Spirit is sweeping through the midst of this conversation. And this woman's heart bursts open like Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And she sees the truth of who Jesus is. Now, like often is the case, we have a transition in the story. We have transitions in our lives. We have interruptions in the midst of these conversations, in the midst of encounters like this, in our relationships and all of that. Sometimes they come from the outside, sometimes they come from the inside. In this particular case, the disciples show, show up and they are shocked. They are shocked and scandalized that Jesus is having this conversation with a woman all by himself up here with nobody else there. Yet, they didn't say anything. They were thinking, it appears, the text says, well, what do you want? Why, why are you talking with her? What is going on here? Jesus, have you lost your mind? What is happening here? She wasn't worried about them. She wasn't worried about what was going on with them because something had just broke loose in her heart. And so she said, go back and tell somebody. All right? So this transition, and there's, there's a lot here that we're not going to be able to look at there's, there's, a, there's a story here about Jesus and his spiritual nourishment. There's a story here about the recognition of, uh, of a harvest that's ripe and ready to be picked. There's a recognition here, and we're about to see it, of, of a woman becoming an unlikely witness. That God is about multiplying new witnesses, and if the disciples were too dumb... Have you ever thought about this? Do this with me just for a second. They had just been in town. They had just gotten food and all of that. They'd come back to Jesus. Is there ever a mention about the witness for the Christ that they gave while they were down there getting food? Don't think so. They had a job to do for Jesus. They were working for Jesus. They didn't have time to talk to people about Jesus. Right? Well, I got to get to church. I'll have time. I'll have time for you, neighbor. I'm so sorry. Maybe I'll catch you on, on the backside. I, I, I got to get to church because I'm important. I got stuff to do at church. You know, I, I'm, 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 I'm feeding Jesus when I get back. We're getting this food. All right. So, so we don't have time to camp out in that, in, that, in that section. But this is what I want you to see. She did what he did. 
She did what Jesus did. And in the same way that, that, that Jesus was there in that ex- unexpected place with an unexpected person, giving a, an unwavering message, unswerving in his approach, not getting distracted by all the other things and all of that, she had one mission, and that was to get back and tell as many people as she could tell about what just happened to her. Some of y'all, when you first came to Jesus, you had that feeling in your heart, didn't you? You were fired up. There was no stopping you. You were going to tell everybody what Jesus did for you. And sadly and unfortunately for most of us, the longer that we walk with Jesus often, we lose that fire. We lose that passion. We get so busy, again, doing things for Jesus that we forget that the point that we're still here is to introduce people to Jesus. But here we have this rebel who becomes a true worshiper in spirit and in truth. What Jesus prophesied in that moment about what was going to happen with becoming worshipers in spirit and truth happened for that woman right there in that minute. And a part of her worship was to go and be a witness. That is a part of our worship, you know, right? What a glorious way that we worship the Lord Jesus when we get in front of people who don't believe who he is and we help them just to lift their chin up just a little bit and look and catch a glimpse of how glorious Jesus is. That's some worship right there, right? Are we as animated about that kind of worship as we are about the worship that we do when we gather here on Sunday mornings? She was an unapologetic witness. She didn't care what people thought of her. We do realize that because of the circumstances of her life, clearly there was some stuff going on there. And she was the last person. Can you imagine? I, won't, I, 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 know her, I know her run along, but I want you to stay with me. This is such a great story. Can you imagine some of the thoughts that went through the neighbors' minds when this woman of all women shows up, the woman that nobody talked to, everybody talks about, she shows up and she says, I think I just met the Messiah. Right? I mean, they were all expecting it to come, expecting him to show up. Can you imagine somebody, and I have to believe that somebody shouted out their window, to you... Ha! He ain't going to show up to somebody like you. Maybe me. You know. He might show up at my door. Because I'm a little bit of something, something. He might, he might show up. But to you, mm, I don't think so. It was scandalous, right? It was scandalous that this conversation happened. Now scandalous that this woman of all women would say, I think the Messiah is here and I just had a conversation with him. And guess what? He told me everything about my whole life. He just opened up my whole heart and told me everything. We don't know what all else they had conversation about. We just see the glimpses of it here, right? But she didn't care. She didn't care what anybody else thought. She was an eyewitness and she just wanted to give testimony of what she'd seen. Brothers and sisters, can I remind you that that's what we are? We're eyewitnesses. We're not expert witnesses. You know the difference between an expert witness and an eyewitness? Expert witness has expertise in a particular field that is germane to the case at hand. They are unengaged, unemotional. They're there to say, let me tell you what I know about DNA and how it relates to the 
facts of this particular case. Let me tell you what I know about blood splatter and what that means about what happened in this certain situation. Right? They're expert witnesses. Some of us are convinced that we're here to be expert witnesses. I don't think that's the case. Now, we can be experts in things we can learn, and we need people who go deep and who know those things and who can help us learn and grow and all of that. I am not anti-education. I'm not anti-academics or anything like that. But at the end of the day, what God has left all of us as believers here to do is to be eyewitnesses. And that means what we do is say, this is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. I looked out my window, and I saw... Lance punch Michael in the nose, knock him down, and then step up over him and say, if you get up, I'm going to pop you again. That's what I saw. That's what I heard. Right? I'm not, I, I'm not an expert in where the blood went or all these other things. I don't know all about the trajectory. Of the pun- I don't know anything about all. I'm just telling you what I saw and heard. Right? That's, a, that's an eyewitness. That's an eyewitness. Brothers and sisters, you have something to be an eyewitness about. Because you know what you've seen? You've seen Jesus turn your life upside down. You've seen Jesus take an old stone heart and turn it into a heart of flesh that beats for him. You've seen Jesus take your hopelessness and turn it into hope. You've seen Jesus take an inglorious life, a life that by its nature you were an object of wrath and he's turned you into a display of his glory. And you have a book that tells you why it happened, how it happened, what's going on with it, that you can share with other people as well. That are the very words of God that tell us who we are and who he is and what it means to have a relationship with him and what he wants to do next. Right? You got something to tell. You got something to be an eyewitness about. That's what this woman was. That's what we are. And the more we get it mixed up, The more we begin to think that it's just too risky, we can't be that bold, I want to remind you that we have a great high priest in heaven. Hebrews 4 is clear about it. We have a great high priest in heaven that speaks on our behalf and that is empowering us to be faithful to do what he's called us to do. He didn't send us to the store to buy milk with no money. He gave us everything that we need to accomplish the task that he's asked us to accomplish. Will we? Will we? Here, here's the final part of this story that's just so beautiful, and that is that Jesus and the Holy Spirit did what only God can do. There were unfathomable results that took place here. Who would have expected that in Sychar, in Samaria, revival would break out? And who would have expected that the spark would be a woman like her? Oh, my. Right? I think, I think Jesus wants to do great things in your community, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, in your school, where he's planted you to be a gospel witness and an influence. I think he wants to do great things. I think he wants to see fruit born in that. Will it always happen that way? Will it happen quickly? Will we maybe just be the planters? Will we maybe just be the waters? And we're not going to necessarily get to see? Or are we going to be like these disciples and get to begin to see fruit from fields that we didn't even plant? It it could be any of those ways. But the point is, God's going to do his work. We can trust him to do his work. And he wants to use us to do the work for him to do his work. 
I hope that you see in this text that Jesus has set for us this amazing path. He's just, he's just taken a big old beam of light and shined it down the path and say, this is what it looks like. When I told you to do what I'm going to tell you to do, this, this is what it looks like. It doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to be in the perfect place, the perfect time with the perfect people and all of that. You go where God sends you. You follow those divine appointments. You be faithful. You be faithful to be where he wants you to be, doing what he wants you to do, with who he's asked you to do it. And I think God's going to bring some amazing fruit. We pray, and we ask that he would. Let me pray with us. Father God, just want to say thank you for your grace and your mercy. Jesus, thank you for this amazing testimony and example that you've shown us in this story. Jesus, I thank you for this woman who may have had a shameful life, but she's in some ways shamed us today that we have all these excuses for why we have a hard time talking to people about you and sharing Jesus and making disciples and all of that. And yet, none of that hampered her to be obedient. So God, I pray that as we come to the table this morning, that we would be reminded that the message that we have to offer is all about you. It's all about who you are. It's all about what you've done, that your broken body, that your spilled blood is our rescue and that we are here to invite people to the table to come and to know the goodness and the grace and the mercy of the Lord to be rescued and given hope. God, I pray as we come today that we would come with fresh hearts, renewed spirits to be obedient and faithful to what you've called us to do. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your abundant love for us that when we were lost and far from the Father, you came running after us. You searched us out. You found us, and you brought us to new life. We praise you in Jesus' name.